uh, this is kind of the, the ending of our season of epiphany that we've been in. And for those of you that are already like, right, the church has seasons, what does this mean? Um, just allow me to quickly review that for you. And so, um, yeah, our liturgical calendar, it provides kind of a scaffolding for this annual journey through Christ's life, birth and life and death and his resurrection. And the idea is that we'd be continuously brought into the narrative and that we'd be shamed by... Or, not shamed, changed <laughs> by our, that, that's one of those words that you, yeah, you got to get that one right, <laughs> um, by our um, rhythmic participation in it. And so that's why we have these seasons that we keep coming back to again and again. So today being the last Sunday of Epiphany, the intention would be for us to reflect on God's glory, the way that he's been made manifest, uh, the way that he's revealed himself in our lives, but more specifically how he revealed himself through the incarnation of Jesus. So we're intended to recall the glory um, that we experienced when the Magi came to visit Jesus, um, the baptism of Jesus, all these profound teachings and moments uh, of healing and other signs and wonders. And we're intended to recall in this all the ways that God has been making himself known. Now, Jack King, who is a writer for um, the Anglican Com Compass, which if you are not familiar with, it's a website. It's a fantastic resource for rookie Anglicans like myself. Um, and he talks about Epiphany being this season that's a bridge um, from Christmas into Lent. And to summarize his words, he says, and George, oh, perfect, it's already up there. Um, he says, the essence of Epiphany season is to see and experience the glory of Christ. And in, the, in that, the light of the incarnation is increasing by degrees. And I love this image of that last part of just this increasing by degrees. So more and more we are seeing um, the light of Christ. He's becoming more and more luminous, more and more known, more and more revealed. And so that leads us to the significance of today, of his transfiguration. Um, this is often referred to as kind of the crescendo of God's glorious manifestation within his incarnation. And that's what we're going to look into uh, in our passage in Matthew today. So, uh, yeah, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 17, and this is the first nine verses, and we're going to kind of explore the nature of revelation that's found in the character of God um, that, yeah, is displayed through Christ's transfiguration, and along the way, we're going to talk about some of the implications this has for us as followers of Christ. So looking first at what I'm going to call Act 1, um, this is going to be mostly around verses 1 to 2. And so again, I'll read them for us. So it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses Elijah talking with him. So as you begin to envision this scene in your mind, I hope that some of the imagery here feels familiar. Six days, being up on a high mountain, a bright light. Hopefully you're catching the similarities here between this imagery as the Exodus passage that Beth read for us a few moments ago. In the Jewish tradition, uh, this mountaintop was a common place where people would have meetings or encounters with God. So it makes me wonder if the disciples had this in mind as Jesus was trucking up the mountain with them. If not, perhaps they kind of caught on once they saw Moses and Elijah up there. 
And, you know, this thing started to click, that there might be something significant that's about to happen up here. Um, the moments of, of revelation that Moses and Elijah had with God on top of the mountains were profoundly, um, profoundly shaped their lives, but more importantly, they profoundly shaped the trajectory of Israel. And so these moments were known to Jesus' disciples. These were the moments that kind of defined their faith. And so, again, hopefully, or you're assuming in in the moment, if they weren't catching on, in their reflections later, they were probably catching on that God was using this familiar pattern. And so this brings me to one of the first lessons that I feel like this passage has for us, and it's that the same God uses the same means of revelation. So this felt important to point out in light of Chad's teach a couple of weeks ago, as we talk about the significance of revelation within Epiphany. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, I've come to now kind of recognize these spaces and places and words um, and sensations that come through moves of the Holy Spirit when God is about to do something, when God is about to reveal something to me. And, you know, you, yeah, you start to kind of catch on to these patterns uh, when, when God's up to something in your life. And now please don't hear this as some sort of like hippy-dippy look for patterns in the sky sort of thing, but I think we all kind of know these particular ways that are familiar to us that elicit the sense that God is doing something and he wants us to pay attention. And this is not a limiting thing, of course, because God works outside of these means of revelation all the time, but these familiar sensations, they resonate with us and they help us actually know that it is God, that he is here and that he's the one who's up to something. It's this beautiful grace to us in kind of the, the confusion and um, mystery that comes along with Revelation. Now, if I'm honest, do I always engage these moments the way God might hope that I would? No. Do I get stoked and jump on the train every time? Not at all. And if I'm really honest, there's times when, you know, to use the language of Moses, I, I like see the cloud coming over the mountain and I'm like, okay, where's the path back down? Because <laughs> I, I know something's about to go down here and I'm like not totally sure um, I, like, yeah, how much I want to be here because often these moments are accompanied by some sort of cost. And so that's something we'll get into a little later. But again, what I want to point out here is that there is this grace in the fact that God uses these familiar patterns of revelation in our lives it gives us a chance to actually recognize and receive the revelation that's before us with some degree of confidence. And it reminds us that God, he wants to be known. He's not trying to be tricky um, or overly mysterious in these ways. He's actually trying to reveal himself to us. And so, yeah, there's just this beauty uh, in that. And I'm thinking to this moment on the mountain for Peter, James, and John, and it's so bewildering by nature in general, but can you imagine how wild it would have been if there was none of these tethering motifs there? Like, I just, I feel like they would have no, no means of being able to grasp what's happening. And so to that, I say we have a good and gracious God. So now that we've kind of noted God's character uh, in this act of revelation, let's circle back to what exactly God might be revealing in this glorious act. So we read that Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. I want to camp out on this moment for a little while. So first, Jesus was transfigured. That is, his form changed. There was a shift in him. The disciples watched Jesus' human state 
be transformed into kind of this elevated form. God unveiled Jesus' divinity within his humanity before their very eyes. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the relationship of Jesus' humanity and divinity because that is a conversation that the church has beat around the bush for a long, long time. And, you know, even the most dedicated theologians of the church have, have come to understand that there's this element of mystery in it. But George, if you want to throw that next slide up, um, this is an image that Adam showed me last night that we just felt like fit into all this. And you can see in this drawing that you, the idea of it is you can't actually tell which hand is drawing which. But there's this beautiful relationship at play. And I think this is a, kind of an image that represents this idea of Jesus' humanity and divinity all at once. Um, that the two, there's a connection between the two and one informs the other and the other informs that. And... Um, I think it also actually ties into this idea of revelation and that revelation and mystery often go hand in hand. And so we, and that's the second part that I want to bring up here then is that with this revelation and mystery going hand in hand, uh, I think it's often an area of frustration in our own lives. We long for revelation from God, but often it's accompanied by actually more mystery. And I think going back to what Chad taught on a few weeks ago, that we, we need to have an appropriate understanding that in receiving revelation from God, that doesn't mean that things are just super clear and it's case closed. Um, and on the flip side, also we need to kind of hold our expectations that when we receive revelation from God, you know, there's actually probably a good chance there'll still be some mystery in it. And that doesn't mean that that revelation is inadequate or that God's holding out on you. But there's just this relationship um, when it comes to the humanity and divinity coming together. And so I guess what I'm kind of getting at here is mystery is kind of this space that falls between humanity and divinity. And it's the remnants of this chasm that's slowly being brought together and will one day be closed again. And we get a, an, an image of that in this moment for Christ as his humanity is transfigured. Now, I um, also want, I want to look at this idea of, obviously, Peter, James, and John. They're probably, have, like, their minds are being blown right now by what's happening before them. But I want us to spend some time talking about this presence of Moses and Elijah in this scene. So at first you might be thinking, like me, maybe this is like childhood stuff of like always feeling slightly on the outside, but I'm like, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham? Why not Isaac? David? Like all these other guys. Why, why not them? Why are these two here? And um, ultimately what it is, is that in this moment you have Moses, who is the receiver of the law, and Elijah, the receiver of prophecy, both by God's um, grace in their lives, they bore witness to this coming Messiah. And now they're actually meeting him in the flesh. Again, they, they've known him in kind of this heavenly sense, but they're actually meeting him in the flesh. They're meeting God incarnate in a way um, that they, they spoke of and, and shared, and this moment is actually happening for them. So yes, it's profound for the disciples, but it's also a very profound moment for Moses and Elijah. And again, this is significant because the literature of the law and the prophets are kind of the twofold backbone of the Jewish scriptures. So um, this interaction is kind of set up to be this witness of a, a stamp of approval 
of Jesus, that he, in fact, is the one whom their scriptures uh, foretold of. And I love um, the early church father, John Chrysostom, one of those names, good, always struggle with it, here we go. Um, um, he notes that this is specifically uh, significant given the cultural backlash that Jesus is experiencing at the time. And so, in one of his works, he writes that men were continually accusing him, that's Jesus, of transgressing the law and accounting him to be a blasphemer as appropriating to himself glory which belonged not to him. So he brings forth them who shone out of each their own respects. Moses, because he gave the law, and the Jews might infer that he would not overlook it being trampled on. And they supposed nor have shown respect to the transgressor of it. And Elijah, too, for his part, was jealous for the glory of God. And were any man an adversary of God and calling himself God, making himself equal to the God, or sorry, to the Father, while he was not, what he said, had no right to do so. He was not the person to stand by and hearken unto him. So excuse the kind of old, awkward English here, but I'll, I'll summarize it for you a little bit. But I hope you're picking up on the essence of a, what Chrysostom is communicating. That if Jesus um, was not who he was being revealed to be, these two guys would have a problem with it. <laughs> they would not be coming down and having this magnificent conversation. Um, but here we see them coming and meeting with Jesus, and there's no brawl breaking out. So there's something significant in that too, um, that again, the, these two men were holders of truth in the Jewish tradition, and their presence just carries this weight with it about what's actually happening in Jesus. So again, you can now kind of begin to, to see um, how significant this moment could be for Peter, James, and John. And, for although, and although that they believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and shortly before this passage in Matthew 16, we actually read about Peter confessing um, Jesus as the Messiah, there were so many voices of um, questioning and suggesting otherwise around them. So you can imagine that that would be a pretty hard place to hold. I think all of us can kind of relate to this idea of contradictory voices in our lives. We're trying to hold on to something that we believe to be true, but everyone's telling us we should question it. And once again, I think we see a piece of God's character in this moment and in this scenario. God comes and he meets any lingering questions that these disciples may have with a glorious manifestation, with this beautiful act of revelation for them. And he makes himself known in a way that once again is familiar to them. It fits within a framework of understanding while also blowing their sandals off. But again, we see this good and gracious God in the process of revelation. And I think seeing these pieces of God's character is just as important as the revelation itself. So on top of all this, uh, there's also something, you can believe it, even more significant that's happening for this group as a whole. Um, so St. Ephraim of Syria, uh, who's one of our Eastern church fathers from the third century, beautifully captures the significance of this moment for the church at large. So he says, There was a joy for the prophets and the apostles by this ascent on the mountain. The prophets rejoiced when they saw his humanity, what they had not known. The apostles also rejoiced when they saw his glory, or sorry, the glory of his divinity, which they had not known. And they heard the voice of the Father bear witness to his Son. And through this they recognized his incarnation, which was concealed from them. 
And the witness of the three, sealed by the Father's voice, and by Moses and Elijah, who stood by him like servants as they looked to one another, the prophets to the apostles, and the apostles to the prophets. The authors of the old covenant saw the authors of the new, and the mountain became a type of church, and on it Jesus united the two covenants, which the church received and made known to us. He is the giver of two. They received his mysteries, the other revealed the glory of his works. Just sit with that for a moment. <laughs> I love this line of the mountain became a type of church because it is such a revelation and a foretelling of the church that is coming. Again, you see those who knew his divinity experiencing the humanity and those who knew his humanity experiencing his divinity. And those who spoke of the coming Messiah now get to experience and see him in the flesh. And not only that, they get to see the men that he has chosen to help carry this new reality into the world. Can you imagine what an initiation this would be for Peter, James, and John? How powerful this would be to not only see the Messiah that they believe in be transformed and essentially kind of confirmed before them, but also the fathers of their faith who had led them to this place um, be present and have this just really divine and sacred moment on top of this mountain. Oh, man. <laughs> this is one of those moments I wish we could just sit in for a while, and I'm sure afterwards the disciples wish they could have just sat here for a while as well. Um, but we're going to keep moving on, and we're going to move into Act 2 now with all of this in mind. So what I'm calling Act 2 is largely based around verses 5 and 6. Uh, so just as, just before this, you know, Peter's talking to Jesus, pitching his plan to put some tents up for Moses and Elijah. And again, this is where we see the bright cloud uh, overshadow them. And from this cloud, a voice that is, the voice said, this is my son, the beloved with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Then the disciples heard this. They fell on the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. So again, we have this parallel imagery um, to the story of Moses and Elijah as well when they've had these mountaintop moments with God. Um, and God is exercising his favorite tactic of repetition by speaking the truth of Jesus' identity over him, just as he did at his baptism with these words, that this is my son, the beloved, which I am well pleased. But this time around, the revelation of Jesus' identity is accompanied by instruction. Listen to him. Listen to him. You might be able to argue that the difference between revelation and manifestation could be defined by the former being a type of knowledge and the latter being more of a nature of embodiment. And so earlier in our time together, I talked about epiphany being this, um, this movement of degrees, this um, coming of light. And I think there's an interesting piece at play here that as Christ is, is fully revealed to his disciples, it's accompanied by instructions by a call to action, call to actually do something and to respond in a particular way. Listen to him. I think this points out to the important reality that revelation often elicits some sort of uh, response. And 
the more that we seek and make space for God's presence in our lives and ask him to become manifest, it's likely going to require something of us. And I think this idea is supported by the surrounding text of Matthew as well as in the other gospel accounts of the transfiguration as it's always preceded by um, Jesus telling his disciples that they will, to follow him, they're going to have to take up their cross, that it's going to cost them something, and that to, to gain their life, they're going to actually have to lose it. And I can imagine that witnessing this transfiguration is a bit of a confirmation of that teaching to Peter, James, and John. Jesus' most intimate disciples have given up so much to follow him, but in this moment, they also witness how much he gave up to lead them. And he's just getting started. They don't even know all that's coming yet. Um, but the more that they're shown, the more that is asked of them. And again, I think this is one of those important things for us to just kind of recognize in our own lives, because I think sometimes we, we want, you know, the mountaintop moment, but we don't want God to ask us of anything. We just kind of want to hold on to that um, and, and live into that. And so this weighty reality is basically confirmed by the apostles' response and the fact that they're terrified um, in response to one of the most revelatory moments of God's glory ever encountered by humankind, the disciples are on the ground in the fetal position overcome by fear. How true yet mysterious is that? Some of my most treasured moments of revelation with God have also resulted in quite a bit of fear. Um, hence why I now sometimes look for like the exit ramp down the mountain when that cloud starts coming on. <laughs> um, because there's this reality that the two are always at play. There's something that's being asked. But once again, I want to look at the character of Jesus in this moment. His disciples are on the ground, terrified um, by what has just been revealed to them. And Jesus, it says that Jesus comes and he touches them. And he says to them, do not be afraid. In this moment of glorious divinity of Jesus, he still meets them in their humanity with his humanity. He touches them. He speaks to them. He comes close to them. He's in this intimate relationship with them. He did not abandon him in this glorious manifestation, but instead attended to them, supported them. I get the sense that perhaps um, he took some time to unpack this encounter with them and process it with them before heading back down the mountain. Once again, I feel like all I can say is what a good and gracious God. And so the question I always want to ask coming away from the study of Scripture is what is God's invitation for me or for us in here? Or put another way, what is he wanting me to grasp about him and what is he, or how is he inviting me to respond? So as we wrap up, I want to highlight a few kind of peripheral dynamics that also add some interesting nuance to some of the points that we've already talked about. So the first being that in the Old Testament, we read about God bringing Moses up to the mountain, about bringing Elijah up to the mountain. And in this story, we see Jesus bringing his disciples up to the mountain. And I want you to catch this um, idea of Jesus's leadership. He's the one bringing people up the mountain. Um, he's the one who brings us to these moments of revelation, of manifestation, and of encounter. I think this idea is significant, and it plays out in the way that, of Jesus' final instructions as they head back down the mountain, and he says, don't go tell everyone about this. And again, this you know, is familiar to us given that uh, Jesus told this to many people that he healed, 
kind of connected to this idea of it not being his time yet. Um, but I also think, you know, he's, he's trying to protect, protect people from this expectation that just if you go up to the, if you climb your way to the mountaintop, something magnificent is going to happen. And, you know, when you think of really the mayhem that would have broken out if word got out about this, if people found out that God was being made manifest on top of a mountain with Moses and Elijah, like, there'd be hundreds, thousands, just trekking up this mountain, wanting to see this incredible spectacle. But I think, again, this points out that it's not actually about the spectacle. It's about what's being revealed in the spectacle. And, and in that, um, it can only really be understood by the particulars who are there. And in this moment, it is for these particular disciples um, and these particular prophets. Um, but what happens in that moment is for all of us. Again, it's for the church. But the only way that that moment can be for the church is that there is this particularity there. And so, um, yeah, I just think that that's a significant piece when we think about Revelation, um, that God is the one who leads that, and he leads that with purpose and with reason. So along those same lines, earlier in Matthew 16, we read about the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus, and they're asking him for a sign from heaven, which now, knowing what happens, I find even more humorous, um, that here they are, they're, they're struggling to have faith in Jesus, and so they ask him for this heavenly sign. And we all know how that plays out, where Je like, Jesus doesn't give it to them. And shortly after this, though, again, we have this moment where Peter, in faith, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And would you look at who gets to receive the heavenly sign? It is the one who confesses in faith. Um, there's this, this stepping out, and if you weren't um, at catechism this past Tuesday, John did an incredible job introducing the Apostles' Creed to us and unpacking just its first two words, we believe, and how saying these words require a step of faith, and that, um, yeah, this step of faithfulness is the very thing that actually opens us up to the potential um, of God being able to come in and do something, the potential of revelation that will then support and strengthen that professed belief. And so, I, yeah, I find it interesting that it's Jesus' most intimate disciples, probably the ones that had, in some ways, the most faith in him, got to actually witness um, this incredible heavenly sign. But again, I think it's notable because they're probably the ones who would actually be able to take it for what it is. Um, and yeah, there's just this element that faith often begets revelation. And sometimes if we're standing a little too far back and say, God, I'm not going there until you you know, reveal this to me, he's actually inviting us to step and says, as you step, I will bring greater revelation. And now finally, while we're kind of on this topic of Peter, oh, sweet Peter, um, in verse four, we read um, that he says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Uh, if you wish, I'm going to set up these three dwelling places for you, for Moses, for Elijah. And I love this line, it is good for us to be here as if to say it is right, it's the way things should be. And there's probably some merit to that, um, but also looking at the surrounding uh, text, in Matthew 16, we read about Jesus telling his disciples uh, that he will die and be resurrected, and Peter's distraught to the point where he's like, Lord, like, let it not be so. And I mean, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, like, again, Jesus and Peter, they're having this, this moment that doesn't look like idyllic discipleship. And so a lot of scholars have kind of suggested that Peter's recommendation to set up these, this camp up here 
is kind of a, a safety tactic. He's wanting to protect his rabbi. He can tell that it's good what's going on up here. There's clearly the presence of God. We got Moses and Elijah. We're safe from everyone. This is great. Let's just live on this mountaintop. Um, but again, as the text continues to unfold, we see that Jesus says that that's not the point of this. Um, this is significant, but it's only significant because we now come down the mountain. Once again, I think this is very relevant to our own lives of how often I know I would sometimes prefer to be on the mountaintop when it is those amazing experiences of revelation and God's goodness and peace and you're just saturated in that. It's, we we kind of want to say, God, like let's just set up camp here. But the call of the gospel is to take that and to come down the mountain and we don't come down from the mountain empty-handed. It's not like what happened up there stays up there, and it's only accessible up there. In the same way that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, we are transformed in these moments of encounter and manifestation with him. And that transformation strengthens us to be able to come back down and to enter in to whatever is on the ground waiting for us. Again, even if you, if you follow the story, when they come down the mountain, Jesus and his disciples are instantly hit with demons, with death, with destructive relationships, and they're just right back in the thick of it. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking like, are you kidding me? Like, we were just up there, and this was fantastic. Why are we back here? What is going on? Um, but that's all part, part of this process of revelation. And again, in our season of Epiphany now, we're talking about this, the crescendo of, of revelation and manifestation. And as they come down the mountain, it actually begins Jesus's journey towards the cross. And that is the journey that we are now entering into as we come into Lent. So as you know, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and it's the beginning of Lent. And as Chad or Sarah, someone already mentioned, Chad sent out this fantastic video introduction to Lent, and it's in your inbox. If you haven't watched it, I would highly encourage you to do so uh, in the coming days to kind of begin preparing yourself to enter into this season. But he talks about some of the themes of this season, being penance and soul-searching, fasting and prayer. And it's ultimately this season of preparing our hearts for the resurrection. In Lent, we follow Jesus into the wilderness, and we follow him into both the depths and the good news of the gospel. And out of this season of epiphany, of great revelation, of manifestation, of encounter, we enter into Lent as a time where we now ask God to make us ready to receive. We have seen a great light. Lord, help make us ready to receive it in its fullness. I'd encourage you to also reread the passage that Beth read for us from Philippians 3 at some point this week, because it really beautifully captures kind of this spirit of transition that's upon us as we enter into Lent. But as I close today, I want to reread today's collect that Sarah had read for us earlier, because it really captures the gift that the transfiguration is to us, and uh, kind of our hope as we enter into this season of Lent. So it reads, O oh God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, Grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
who lives and reigns with us in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.